Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. Of course, I'm excited. As always, it's Ancient History Day today. We have with us Roel Conanen-Duck, who is a classicist and lecturer at New College Oxford. He specializes in ancient Greece and is one of the moderators of Ask Historians, which is the largest public history forum on the internet. And today he is here to dispel a few myths about the, are you ready, Spartans, just for us. Hi, Roel. Hi. Very, very excited. And I promise that throughout this podcast, I will not be uttering the line, this is Sparta. I may do it a few times yeah maybe a few times I don't care so, uh, do you know what I know it's a really big issue for historians when they're watching something on like film or tv or whatever when it comes down to their field but however ridiculous this film is I still love it <laughs> same for me to be honest it's quite entertaining and to be fair it's kind of based a little bit on graphics as well so they had a bit of a licensed freedom right that's it I mean like you can't really expect them to make a historical document they're not making that they're making a movie so it's fun to watch it's a spectacle exactly so okay so let's not concentrate on the myths because we're going to do some myth busting in a minute but let's do some more important things so before we do start on that tell us who were the spartans and how did sparta actually come to be so it's a bit of um a difficult subject actually in a sense because the spartans when we talk about the Spartans, we're talking about a very specific group of people, which is the Spartiates, the full Spartan citizens. So when we're generalizing about the Spartans did this, or the Spartans were like that, or the Spartans went and fought in this particular way, we're talking about that narrow group. But actually, when we're talking about the Spartans in history, we're talking about a much broader group, which is the community of the Greeks themselves referred to as the Lacedaemonians, um, which is the people of Lacedaemon, this, this larger area, which embraces basically all of the land and all the peoples that were dominated by that small group of Spartans. So it's a bit of a complicated issue with the names. Like, it's very difficult to be exact about who you mean with that. Um, but this kind of develops later. So when you're talking about their origins, um, they like to tell the story that they were foreign invaders. They came in at some point and conquered the lands in Laconia and the southern Peloponnese and that they became this sort of overlord, this ruling class of, over uh, a large subjugated population. But there's actually basically no evidence for that story whatsoever. So there's no archaeological record of an invasion or widespread destruction or the replacement of one culture by another. Um, what actually seems to be happening is that in like, after the Bronze Age collapse, in the period after that, when we have no written sources, 
it seems that slowly, um, as populations resettled in different areas from the old urban centers that have been destroyed, in the valley of the Eurotas, a couple of villages started to spring up from the 10th century BC. Um, and as they grew together, they started to form a single new urban nucleus. Or urban is a bit of a big word. I mean, they were, they were, they were quite small, quite simple villages. Um, and the people who lived in that village, in those villages, basically gradually started to dominate the entire region. I did a little bit about this at university. Um, and it's about Spartan women because mm. it's not exactly the same as it was for Greek women, was it? Yeah, so there's a very interesting traditions about the place of women in Spartan society where um, we have some understanding of the kind of laws that existed with regard to the position of women in Sparta, which is pretty rare because we don't really have that for many Greek societies. We basically just have Athens, Sparta, and then Gortin randomly, one of the uh, smaller communities on Crete. Um, so it's difficult for us to say how exceptional Sparta is because we just don't really have that much evidence to compare it with. But it seems that outside authors tended to think that women in Sparta had a lot of license, had relatively large amounts of rights and privileges within society. And again, we're talking only about the citizen Spartan women. So we're not talking about women at large within this Lacedaemonian whole, because most of those, most of the women in that society would be either enslaved and unfree or living in smaller sort of semi-autonomous communities where we don't really have any idea how they will run. But within Spartan society, um, I mean, they do seem to have, have had a bit of a special status, but it's difficult for us to understand exactly what that was because the reason we hear about it is essentially this fascination of outsiders, especially Athenians with this idea of like, ooh, these people are, are different and these women are they're quite free and they get to do all kinds of things that, that, that women aren't supposed to be doing. How exciting and intriguing. So there is a lot of exoticizing and eroticizing going on when people are writing about this. But when we try to look past that as much as best we can, like you do get the impression that there are some senses in which Spartan women may have it a little bit better than women in other Greek communities, in particular with, uh, with regard to property rights. So women in Athens were not allowed to own any property. Um, there were serious like legal contortions made to prevent women from inheriting any property. Um, whereas in Sparta, they were allowed to own their own land and own their own property, which gave them, of course, a certain degree of financial independence and also gave them a certain amount of political influence simply because their property was desirable for others to marry into or for others to, to lay claim to in some way. So that gave them a bit more of a position in society, more security, more freedom to act, and more freedom to speak and, and throw their weight around as well. And Aristotle, of course, being you know terrible, tends to single this out as one of the reasons why Spartan society eventually sort of collapsed and Spartan power crumbled, is because women had too much power and owned too much of the property, and this is obviously terrible. Um, but the idea actually seems to be that there are various... Um, sort of mechanisms within Spar the, the, the Spartan system of inheritance that allowed this to happen and allowed more and more wealth to, um, to end up in the hands of women, um, which then gave them, as I said, sort of slightly greater independence and more opportunities to make their presence known. So for instance, we have Spartan women who sponsor chariot teams at the Olympics, even though women are not allowed to participate, not allowed to, to watch they still, Spartan women are still able to win this because they can afford to sponsor their own chariot teams out of their own wealth. 
and things like that sort of show you that things were a little bit different in Sparta. But at the same time, I mean, we shouldn't overestimate the extent to which this means that these women were free and could do whatever they wanted. I mean, citizen women in Sparta were still mostly valued as producers of male citizens, which means that a lot of the laws that existed actually heavily restricted their freedom, um, more so than those of other uh, women in other Greek communities, ordering them to take exercise, ordering them to display themselves in front of the men, ordering them to participate in various really quite humiliating rituals surrounding marriage and such, um, in order to sort of make sure that they were as available as possible to men as essentially breeding machines, as as fertility agents. Um, And this extends even to their married life. Like you could say, oh, adult Spartan women had considerable freedoms. But in terms of their marriage partners and sexual partners, they were actually entirely at the mercy of, of other male citizens. So there are some serious limitations to that. I love the idea that Sparta fell because it was all about the women. <laughs> well, it's very, it's a very typical sort of conservative Greek idea that if you leave anything to women, it's obviously going to go wrong. Um, this is just their their prejudice or their understanding that women can't handle things. They don't have the right temperament for the right stability or whatever else it is and they don't have the right sort of common good in mind but this is obviously just sort of very tendentious on the part of Aristotle who believes that you should absolutely never allow this to happen whereas in Greece apparently if we compare the different laws that we have available Sparta seems to be on one extreme but it wasn't considered to be a problem until the very end of the classical period when this has been the case for centuries and other communities also at least allowed women greater freedom than they had at Athens. So it's quite possible that it was sort of fairly accepted that women could do things like own property, but this wasn't as outrageous as Aristotle makes it sound. Aristotle sounds like a chauvinistic pig. He's horrible. I mean, he's profoundly... I like to play this game with my students, asking like, you know, do you think Aristotle thinks you deserve the right to vote? Because almost always the answer is no, unless you are independently wealthy and living off of rents and and, and, uh, revenues of your private domains, Aristotle believed you should not have the right to vote. I mean, (laughs) he explicitly says that people who have to work for a living should not, do not deserve the vote, things like that. So So, also he's the one who says that slavery is a sort of natural state. So these kind of horrible things. So he's not just a chauvinistic pig. He's um, elite, an elitist class Class elitist, my gosh, if I can get my words out today, um, and basically anti-everybody who's rich and, and powerful, basically. Yeah, no, pretty much. And also, I mean, like some people blame him for inventing racism as well, so we can make him even more evil. <laughs> Don't really want to go too far down this route. Oh, my gosh. Do you know what? I think we've got to talk about him uh, on a down the pub. You need to come and join us. And uh, we'll do like one of the most hated people in history. And you can talk about Aristotle. He's he's a big contender. (laughs) Love it. Love him. But okay, so we did. Well, you did mention a bit of sources, um, but I'm interested in that. Are there any actual Spartan sources or any actual Spartan writers? Because from my memory, I can't remember or recall any. Because people always believe that all Spartans were just warriors continuously just fighting wars. So logically, they wouldn't have <laughs> any writers. 
Yeah, so I mean, they do to some extent live up to that stereotype. In the sense. So very early on, you have some Spartan writers in the archaic period, especially in the seventh century, there are a couple of prominent Spartan poets. Alcman is one, uh, Tertius is another. And they write poetry about Spartan life and also about Spartan wars. So you have some indigenous writers who are basically just similar to poets that you see elsewhere. So contemporary poets like Archilochus or Sappho, you know, writing poetry in that style. And in fact, reflecting a world in Sparta that is not necessarily Spartan in the way that we picture it. You know, Alcman in particular writes poems about dancing and about pretty girls and about, you know, flowers and bees. So, you know, lovely things. And then after that, it stops. And so throughout the later archaic and classical period, there is no indigenous Spartan writing. Um, no source, what, or no authors whatsoever. And we were fairly certain that this isn't because it was lost. There's no reference to any such source either. So it's not until much later that you once again get some Spartan authors on, um, say, Spartan historians, military writers. It's a century later. So there is a gap in between, which is when, you know, when Sparta is Spartan, allegedly, um, when there actually are no Spartan authors. So we, we find it very difficult to try and get a sense of what Sparta was like in that period because all of the voices we get are from the outside. And this is why I mentioned earlier when we were talking about women, it's difficult for us to tell what life was like for Spartan women because the only evidence we get is from outsiders looking in and saying, look, this is a bit weird. Um, we are really fascinated by this. We find this really tantalizing. Um, and that's obviously not a very neutral perspective. That's obviously not something that explains why this is so. That's something that heavily emphasizes difference and glosses over similarities. And so the impression that you always get from these sources is that Sparta was a radically different place from everything else, and that it was somehow almost like a barbarian state within the Greek world. And that's entirely because those authors are just constantly working with the things that they see or stressing the things that they see that are different, that are not like other states, because otherwise they wouldn't be worth mentioning. And eventually, when the Spartans become more and more admired in the classical period and in the Hellenistic and Roman periods, they're always admired for the things that they do differently. You know, they're not admired for being just like everybody else because of why would you admire the Spartans for that? So when the Spartans are admired for their constitutional stability, which is the main reason why the ancients look up to them, um, it is because it is perceived to be very stable when looked at from the outside and because other people believe that their education system and their laws and their particular institutions are the reason for that perceived stability. And so the way they describe them is not at all simply like an encyclopedia entry. They are absolutely trying to push the idea that Spartans do things better than we do, and we ought to emulate that. We ought to do similar things. And very rarely, like in Aristotle, you get some critical voices. You get somebody saying, oh, they're doing this weirdly, and it's actually wrong. It's actually working, working out badly for them. Um, but even then, we're still receiving judgment from the outside rather than, you know, an account of the intentions and the motives behind it from the inside. I'm going to ask you a very odd question, because this is not a question we actually agreed on. Um, do you think that Spartans were Greek? Would they be classified in that kind of area? Or do you think they were someone completely different? They were unquestionably Greek. I mean, in terms of the language that they spoke, in terms of their cultural practices, I mean, insofar as we have definitions of Greekness, they always fit. I'm mentioning the idea of sort of semi-barbarians precisely because they had certain um, practices which some Greeks sort of remarked on and said, this is so weird. 
it almost becomes un-Greek. Like, for instance, the idea of having kings. Uh, Sparta had kings when all the other states had transitioned to sort of more inclusive forms of government a long time ago. So they retained this ancient, uh, you know, this this institution with murky origins that basically uh, survived only in Sparta and then in a couple of Greek communities really far on the fringes of the Greek world. So in, in Libya and in, in the, the Crimean Bosporus. Um, so these kinds of ideas and the way in which kings were treated in society, the way kings were mourned when they died, these kind of things lead Herodotus to say this is this makes them look pretty barbaric. Um, and some later authors have also noted like other things that they think about Spartan society that makes them think, oh, this is actually um, this is so different from the way that most communities do this that we can almost say like this is a different kind of culture. But at the same time. I mean, nobody ever says, oh, these Spartans should not be allowed to, for instance, participate in the Olympics or something, which is usually where the Greekness of others, the status of Greekness is contested. Like if you're allowed to participate in Pan-Hellenic Games, that means that all the other Greeks accept that you're Greek, basically. Oh, that word Pan-Hellenic. Right, exactly. (laughs) That has come up on this podcast many times. Um, I blame you, Linda, if you're listening. It's all your fault. Let's bust some myths. Uh, We've got a couple here. Uh, Shall I start with the first one? Okay, so Spartans wore those skimpy little outfits and those kind of brief boxery things and a cape. (laughs) True or false? Leather thongs and no armour, right? Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, so that's obviously nonsense. That's that's something they invented for the aesthetic in the movie. Um, the Spartans initially, I mean, in the earlier period, in the archaic period, we have no evidence that they did anything differently from other Greeks. They would have just worn the normal things that other Greeks would wear. And then when they marched into battle, they would wear the same things that other Greeks would wear, which is to say everybody bought their own equipment. They were responsible for their own kit. And so they would just buy whatever they liked. Um, but by the classical period, we get some evidence that the Spartans have adopted a uniform outfit for war. So after the Persian Wars, they start to sort of really focus in on their, on their reputation as, as warlike. And they start to introduce this uniform equipment. And it's been argued that it doesn't necessarily even have anything to do with militarization. It has everything to do with hiding the fact that because the Spartan citizen numbers were dwindling, because there were fewer and fewer Spartan citizens because of inheritance practices and complex reasons, um, they had to fill out the ranks of their phalanx, you know, the, 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 the numbers of their armies with non-Spartiate citizens or non-Spartiate residents of Spartan territory. So increasingly they were using non-Spartans, non-Spartiates to, uh, to fill out their numbers. And in order to hide that, they made everyone dress the same. Um, another aspect to it is that within Spartan society, it was very important for people to not show off their wealth. Um, it became increasingly important for the, the society of the Spartiates themselves, the so-called similars, the homoioi, um, to look similar in order to avoid overt competition for status through explicit or displays of wealth. In order to hide inequalities within society, there were laws that were imposed probably towards the end of the 6th century to make everyone look similar to force everyone to dress the same, to eat the same, to live similar lives in order to hide the actual very real inequalities within society. So for those two reasons, probably nothing to do with military, with the military or with fighting, um, they introduced the uniform dress. And that dress took the form of probably 
fairly simple red tunics. Um, that garment that they wore, which is, is, is referred to as the poinike, the red one, um, is obviously obscure. Like, what does that mean? The red what? <laughs> and there is some debate over whether that was a cape or a tunic. Most likely it was just a regular tunic because we hear from other occasions as well that red tunics were sort of favored for warriors because they looked quite intimidating and angry. And basically they, they have this sort of aspect of, of uh, military prowess that, that they seem to radiate. Um, at around the same time, they were also mandated to wear their hair long, to shave their beard in a particular way, so to only wear a beard and not a mustache, um, to wear their hair, so to, to dress their hair carefully before battle, these kind of aspects of Spartan, which were meant to in, increase their intimidation factor, to make them look scary, essentially. Um, and similarly with their shields, like they, from the classical period onwards, they seem to have had to carry bronze-plated shields, um, so these large hoplite shields, the aspides that they carried into battle, they had to buy the type that has a very thin sheathing of bronze around the wooden around the wooden core, which is intended again to be polished really nicely to a high shine so that it can look intimidating, look scary to the enemy. And the result of that kind of outfitting, and they they would all wear this into battle. They would all look very much the same, and they would be rolling forward. Um, Xenophon once described it as a a sort of single whole, like a single mass, all bronze and red. So this idea is supposed to be like, this is going to intimidate, this is going to scare the enemy into running away. Um, sounds a bit communistic, really, doesn't it? With all the red, yeah. <laughs> Not just that, it's kind of like people should be dressing the same and doing the same and living the same. And I'm sitting there going, wow, it's like modern times, really. <laughs> Well, it's a bit of a paradox in the sense that this is fairly common in, in Greek states generally in this period, so later Archaic, early classical period, to have sumptuary laws, which is to say laws that mandate what you can do, like how much of your wealth you can display in public. Uh, so they will have lo- lots of different states, including Athens, would have laws about how big your funerary monuments could be or how much jewelry you're allowed to wear, what kinds, what kind of dress, um, you know, how many of all sorts of things you were allowed to own. And the reason for that is just to prevent single people from showing off, from taking this sort of elite competition to such extremes that it would cause an imbalance in status and power. Because several of the kinds of wealth that you could acquire would also increase your status and power and influence within the community. And if single people through their enormous wealth could do that more than others, then it would create all sorts of antagonisms and might even lead to the richest people within that system uh, seizing absolute power and establishing themselves as tyrants. And so to prevent that kind of internal discord and internal strife, a lot of Greek states seized the the idea of sumptuary laws to basically diffuse that friction, diffuse that competition. And Sparta went further than anyone else in imposing this kind of thing and basically forcing everyone to live in apparently uh, poor lifestyle, apparently austere lifestyle, to make sure that it was not obvious to everyone just how big the differences within citizen class were, just how much some people owned and how little other people could afford. Do you know what? I, at the beginning, I thought, yes, I would love to live in Sparta. Women have these better rights, you know, obviously than, better than Athens anyway. Now you're telling me all of this. Um, I'm going to say thank you very much, but I will go and live in Rome. Well, there are some mitigating factors, I have to say. So there are things that, you know, for instance, women 
um, may have been suffering various restrictions to their freedoms and may have suffered numerous obligations to the community, just like the men. On the other hand, there's no evidence that they're sort of once they were indoors, you know, once they were on private turf, um, there is no evidence that their way of life was in any way restricted. And so several ancient authors actually say that the women of Sparta lived in luxury, even though the men who spent most of their lives in public had to feign living in poverty and had to feign this kind of ostentatious display of austerity. Um, apparently for the women and for those who never had to leave the home for any public business, um, it was actually quite comfortable. Okay, so talking about men, let's stick to this subject. I do kind of want you to tell me this is the truth. You know, that little 16-year-old girl in me is like, oh, but no, you're probably going to tell me I'm wrong. So all Spartans were exceptionally well-built and all had six packs. True or false? Yes, um, actually, I'm going to want to say like this, this may be true. Um, I don't want to play it up too much. It's obviously not like 300. I mean, those bodies take a modern fitness regime and very close, you know, management of your protein intake and things like that in order to achieve that kind of, kind of body. Um, but the Spartans were obsessed with athletics. I mean, they, more than any other state, they mandated this kind of leisure class ideal that like adult citizen men have to spend a lot of time exercising in order to be their physical best. And the purpose of that, of course, is defense. The purpose of that is that fit men are going to be more useful defending their community. And so all Greek states shared this ideal. All Greek states had the sense that the leisure class earned its keep, essentially, by being literally better than others. And part of that was being physically better, you know, taking their time to exercise so that in wartime they would be superior. Now, obviously, that's an ideal. In most states, it would depend on, you know, whether you wanted to or not. Most rich men probably wouldn't bother. And there's a lot of complaints in other sources that the rich in all societies are actually just completely fail to live up to this and are mostly just spending all their time in the shade, eating a lot and drinking a lot. In Sparta, it was required for citizen men to exercise every day. And so that was another way in which essentially they stepped up their adherence to this ideal and to this leisure class, to this management of leisure class life in order to prove that they were all equals and in order to prove that the way they organized things was better than others. And so there was a degree to which men Spartans were more likely to be fit than leisure classes elsewhere. I mean, they were an entire community of leisure class citizens, every single one by virtue of um, the requirements of citizenship had to be a leisure class gentleman. That's what defines the Spartan citizen class. And if you were part of that, and if you had no, nothing else on your hands, essentially, if you could do whatever you wanted with your time, because others were doing the labor for you, um, then you were required to spend some of that time exercising. But they are still a leisure class, and obviously they drink well, they eat well. There are various regulations to that as well, but nevertheless, it's obvious that they never wanted for anything. And so it's quite possible that not all of them could manage their weights or could manage their physique to quite the extent that the ideal prescribed. And one of the things we can also say is that, for instance, when you look at Olympic victors, when you look at you know fighting sports, combat sports, races, um, ex- like fitness sports like discus throwing or javelin throwing, uh, wrestling, the Spartans tend to win early on in the arcade period before their society turns what we consider to be Spartan. But once it does, actually, they stop winning. They rarely ever win in any kind of physical contest against competitors from other Greek states. 
So while that is not a judgment on the Spartan class as a whole, it kind of means that whatever they could achieve, others could achieve just as easily and even better. As long as they put their minds to it, other Greeks could be just as fit as the Spartans. And in fact, when you look at the way that people talk about Spartans as a, as a physical presence, I mean, Xenophon does say like, oh, that you will never find any, any group of people more fit than the Spartans. Like they are, they are really built. Um, but then most authors actually just comment on the way they dress because it stands out, you know, their uniform dress, their, their relatively austere appearance, their leisure class features, like the long hair that they had to carefully maintain, their particular armor, which is quite expensive to, uh, to get. Um, and if you want to look for like jokes about their bodies, I mean, they joke about girls' bodies. Um, Aristophanes jokes that Spartan girls look really butch <laughs> and really big in muscle because, you know, for the, for the rest of the Greeks, it was really strange that Spartan girls were required to exercise just like the men. And so they commented on that and said, wow, these girls, you're training them up to, you know, to strangle a bull with their bare hands, that kind of thing. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hmm... I don't know. You're not selling Sparta to me very well, are you? I'm certainly not trying to. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're going to touch on the next myth, um, only because I sat and rewatched 300 um, for fun, as you of do. Course. Yeah. And it's the whole beginning part. You know, you've got this king and he's out in the wilderness, you know, <laughs> doing this whole rite of passage and this whole narrative is kind of like, and he, I can't remember how it goes, but he kills the beast and he returns a victorious king. Yeah. Anyway. It's like he leaves a boy and returns a Spartan or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Something along those lines, right. How this whole rite of passage thing, how does that work? So what they're referring to in that passage is the so-called cryptea, which is a very hazily attested practice that some Spartans seem to have gone through in which, um, I mean, later sources say actually at one point that it's more like a secret service. And then an even later source says that it's actually a battlefield elite unit. So it's very unclear exactly who the cryptea is or what they, what they do in society. But the earliest attestation from Plato suggests that it is a sort of rite of passage for some of the men uh, when they reach 18, they're basically sent off into the wilderness with nothing. They have to fend for themselves. And then after a while, they come back. And that's their sort of mark of transition into adulthood. It's not all of them. Um, it's certainly not the kings. I mean, this wouldn't have happened to the kings um, because they're exempt from most of these most of these kinds of rituals. Um, they're exempt even from the Spartan upbringing, with the sole exception of some of the kings who, when they grew up, it wasn't clear that they were going to be kings. They weren't exactly heir apparent, so they went through it anyway. 
um, including Leonidas, who's one of the two that we know of, like one of the kings who actually went through the, the upbringing. Uh, but mostly kings would be exempt from this kind of thing. Um, but in any case, I mean, so they would be sent out into the wilderness. They had to fend for themselves. They had to essentially prey on others, steal from others in order to get by. And the movie obviously sanitizes this and shows him sort of being out, fighting a wolf, fighting wild animals. What they would actually be doing is to terrorize the um, the enslaved underclass that was working the land on behalf of the Spartans. So the people that they have enslaved and that are doing all the work for them and that are providing them with their enormous wealth and providing them with their citizen lifestyle, they then go out and murder them randomly and steal from them randomly in order to basically imbue them with a constant terror of the presence of these Spartans. I don't know how to respond to that. That is, that's just <laughs> horrible. It is horrible. I mean, several of the things that the Spartans do to their, to their helmet underclass are sort of notedly awful. And like several people in antiquity already comment on that, the idea that, I mean, one particular admirer of Sparta even dares to say this, that the free men are more free in Sparta than they are anywhere else, and the slaves are more slaves in Sparta than they are anywhere else. So if you, if you had to choose the life of anyone, I mean, the Spartan helots would probably be the last of your options. I'd be leaving Sparta and going to Rome. Well, you know, I mean, they, they enslave people. <laughs> Do you know, this is, I want to bring this up because this comes up quite a lot in our podcast, actually. And that's um, obviously oracles. And clearly they're not showing um, in the film that they go to the Oracle of Delphi because Delphi is not situated like that. Um, They're climbing some high rock thing. Um, So basically she inhales some sort of drug. I want to know what your opinion is on the Oracle of Delphi. Was it this sort of whole, because obviously every ancient historian has their own opinion when it comes down to this. I'm curious Mm. to see what you think. Was she inhaling a drug and going into some sort of trance or was it as they, most historians say, it was just, they gave an open ended answer at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, fundamentally it's, it's the latter. I mean, this idea of, a rock that was, or a fissure that was, that was emitting fumes and they were sitting above these fumes. Only very late sources from the time when the Delphic Oracle is, is waning and is almost being shut down. Um, they start to suddenly report this kind of story and it smacks so heavily of a rationalization of an explanation that says, Oh, actually the gods had nothing to do with this. This is just, this is just a, a natural phenomenon. This is just something that makes people say silly things. And then all these, these goofy, you know, superstitious Greeks. They go and, 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 and interpret that in various ways. I mean, there's no hint of this in any earlier source. I and mean, no, none of the classical sources ever say, oh, you know, she was, she was huffing these fumes and then suddenly she, she was blabbering nonsense. I mean, they were all saying that the priestess there, the, the, the Pythia, was inspired by Apollo um, and was, was giving you the words of Apollo. Now, obviously, if she was blabbering nonsense because she was high on fumes, it wouldn't have been so easy to argue that these were Apollo's counsels. You know, they would have been much more nonsensical than the lines that are recorded for us. They would have been, you know, gibbering nonsense or, or random words, or they would have been, uh, you know, not at all relevant to what was being, what was being asked. But instead, they very, the Pythia clearly very often gave very specific and topical instructions to these people, which according to the Greeks regularly turned out well, you know, they, the famous examples that we get are the ones that are sort of ambiguous and then badly interpreted. 
but actually in a lot of cases, it's just very concrete evidence. Um, and it was very important, especially for people like the Spartans who, I mean, if, if the Spartans, if there's one stereotype about the Spartans in the eyes of the ancient is that they were pious. They were unscrupulously, like completely pious. They believed in every sign that they received, they always took the sacrifices, they always took the omens, they always consulted oracles on almost anything they did. And so for them, the Delphic Oracle is one of the leading authorities, um, sources of wisdom and, and unquestionable knowledge that exists in the world. And the later tradition even says that all of their laws, you know, all of these ideas that made supposedly made Sparta so much better as a state than other states, were literally dictated to their lawgiver by the Delphic Oracle, word for word. That's what they believed. You know, that's what they thought the Oracle could do for them. So the idea that this is just some woman who's being driven mad by, by, by a funny gas, I mean, it just doesn't fit those kind of traditions unless, you know, centuries of Greeks performed a truly miraculous act of self-deception in order to believe that any of these rambling, you know, uh, ravings made actual sense. Okay, next myth. The Spartans... <laughs> were the best warriors? Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the simple answer. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not, it's not that simple, I should say. Um, so we have clear evidence that individually, Spartans were not better warriors than others. So for instance, as I mentioned, the Olympic Games, you know, when you get into combat sport with the Spartans, you might win, you might lose. It's not that the Spartans always win because they're just better fighters. Later tradition says that the Thebans, who would eventually defeat the Spartans in battle, were taught confidence by the fact that when they were occupied by a Spartan garrison in the 380s, um, they were challenged, they would challenge the Spartans to wrestling bouts. And then when they could beat them in a wrestling bout, they started to believe that actually they could beat them in battle as well. So there is this understanding that, you know, the Spartans are not that much better than others, um, as long as you can get them individually. And in fact, I mean, there's this famous legend, we don't know how true it is, but a legendary battle between Argives and Spartans much earlier, about 550 BC, in which 300 picked Spartans fought 300 picked Argives in a battle over some farmland uh, on a borderland between the two states. And according to that story, at the end of this fight between 300 versus 300, um, there was one Spartan left alive and two Argives. Um, Obviously, this is a very neat story, and then like it has various consequences and connotations. But the important thing, the important implication there is that these 300 Spartans were clearly not in any sense, you know, structurally superior to 300 randomly picked Argonians. So there is a degree to which we can tell from this, even if it is a legend, that there was no expectation that Spartans would beat others in a fight. There was no rule that Spartans beat others in a fight, certainly not in under fair conditions. What made them different, and this is something that really starts to crop up towards the, uh, the middle of the classical period, towards the Peloponnesian War, is that the Spartans, earlier than any other Greeks, begin to adapt certain aspects of military organization. So they adopt uh, an officer hierarchy. They divide their phalanx into smaller and smaller subdivisions, each led by their own officer. And they use that subdivision in order to teach their hoplites basic formation drill. And this is obviously much more boring than, you know, the idea of a Spartan who is like superior in combat and who knows exactly how to use his sword and his spear and can beat any number of opponents in a, in a straight fight. But the fact is we have zero evidence, literally none for any period, that the Spartans ever trained with their weapons, that the Spartans tried to master the spear or the sword. There is zero evidence of this. Um, 
And in fact, there is evidence that they despised that kind of skill, that they thought it was not necessary, that it was not important, just like the other Greeks as well. They just didn't think that skill at arms, that the use of weapons was what won battles. You win battles by being more tenacious, braver um, than your opponent and better organized in a crisis. Um, keeping your head cool, keeping your formation orderly, that is how you win a battle. And so the fact that the Spartans were the first to adopt certain methods of tighter organization, more regular drill, more sort of calm discipline in battle. They learned to march in step to the sound of flutes. They learned to follow their officers so that they could perform operations like wheeling and countermarching in battle. Those kind of very basic forms of military organization gave the Spartans a huge edge in battle. And there are numerous cases where the Spartans won battles precisely because of their superior control over their own troops in battle. That is actually what won them several of their most important victories. The fact that they had a hand on their men, they had a handle on how they could move in, you know, how they could operate in combat, and how if the circumstances of the battle changed, if there were new troops appearing, or if there were, you know, if some part of the line needed help, they would be able to organize bringing their troops where they were needed in good order. And that is something that other, other Greeks simply couldn't do because they didn't have even that basic level of training. And the result of that is that the Spartans several times would win battles against even numerically superior opponents because they simply had better discipline and more control over their forces. And that is what reinforces the Spartan reputation for superior uh, you know, military capabilities. This is what makes them reliably uh, win pitched battles. But outside of that very regular uh, conditions, outside of that sort of environment of regular pitched battle, they actually had a much harder time. You know, they couldn't very easily do things like assault cities. They had a lot of trouble uh, engaging with irregular forces and skirmishers. They never developed a very effective cavalry. Um, they had a lot of limitations to their military abilities as well. Well, they won, well, not, they didn't actually win, but 300 of them apparently stood alone against the Persians because <laughs> they were heroic and brave, weren't they? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. No, sure. I mean, um, so properly, that... come on. It's, it's, you know, they're heroic. They're like, yeah, we're Spartans. We win. <laughs> you know, they lost that battle, right? I mean... <laughs> I know they lost, but, you know, there's 300 of them alone or just they stood against against well, the Persians no. on their own. Well, firstly, so, no, there weren't 300 of them. Uh, they never stood alone. Um, their fight was a complete defeat. They were utterly outmatched by the Persians. And it was a hopeless and pointless sacrifice in front of a force that they could have could well have stopped if they had been a little bit smarter about it. Um, the story of Thermopylae, I mean, I always want to stress this, like the way we tell the story of Thermopylae and the way that we depict it in a movie like, like 300, um, this is the most successful propaganda coup ever in history. You know, we are still now today telling the story of Thermopylae the way the Spartans want us to tell that story. <laughs> we are telling it in the way that glorifies them and makes them into heroes and makes their sacrifice into this enormous, incredible achievement. When in fact, I mean, when you read the account of somebody like Herodotus critically, I mean, he was already questioning the, the narrative, this propaganda narrative that the Spartans were bandying about after the battle. He was already kind of poking holes in it, but he found it too good a story to let it go. But more recent scholarship has really sort of picked at this and sort of 
you know, pull at the loose threads in the story and show that there is actually a lot of, um, of, of things you can say about this narrative and how, you know, the way that we understand it is just serving a, a Spartan propaganda purpose. Um, I mean, just at the simplest level, the fact that there were not, in fact, 300 Spartans. I mean, several sources in the classical period relate the tradition that there were a thousand Spartans. Um, that's not counting their enslaved helpers, their servants that they brought along with them. So there were more than a thousand Spartans at the battle. Um, and they brought along, uh, you know, num num numerous allies. And in particular, they were heavily reinforced by local populations from the areas behind Thermopylae, behind the hot gates, who were terrified that if the pass was lost, um, their lands would be overrun by the Persians. So they put all of their men into this, into this battle, thousands of them at a time. So the army that the Greeks gathered was actually something like 7,000, perhaps even more. Um, but that's not really the main thing to take away from this. Actually, the main thing to take away is that 1,000 Spartans is a very small number. Um, we know that in the following year, when they fought the Battle of Plataea, they brought 10,000 hoplites, 5,000 of them full Spartan citizens and 5,000 perioikos, and so uh, freeborn non-citizens which means that 1,000 men is a very, very tiny token force. They could have sent many, many more. And in fact, it's very clear from the narrative in the Robertus that everybody who was there, including the Athenians who were fighting the naval battle at Artemision alongside, were constantly asking themselves, where are the rest? Where are the others? Why aren't they here? And the Spartans would later tell the story like, oh, it's because um, uh, there was a festival. And you can just count the days. You can just count the days back in Herodotus and show, actually, no, when you left, that festival hadn't started yet. It wasn't anywhere near starting. Okay, when you arrived at Thermopylae, the festival was going on. So if you only then called for reinforcements, then we could say, okay, the festival got in the way. But the reality is that they marched out initially with no limitation, no restrictions whatsoever imposed by religion, religion or festivals or traditions. And they only sent about 10% of their levy. And in fact, they required their allies in the Peloponnese to also send just 10% of their levy, even though there were no restrictions to them sending everyone they could. So what's actually going on here is that this is a token force. The Spartans are not committed to defending central Greece. They are sending the absolute minimum to make a show of force in the face of the allies. Um, but that show of force is clearly not enough to hold the pass. And that is indeed what happens. I mean, the pass is quickly overrun, like outflanked and overrun by the Persians, who know exactly what they're doing, are not going to smash themselves to death against this strongly held pass, but to go around it through the mountains and turn it. Um, and that's the end of the Greek resistance. And that causes a tremendous amount of suffering in the areas behind it. Focus and Boeotia overrun. Several communities are ransacked and massacred. Um, Athens itself is razed to the ground. Literally, the entire area is overrun and plundered. Um, and it almost causes the entire alliance to crumble because at that point, who can trust the Spartans? Who would believe that the Spartans who claim leadership over this alliance will actually do what it takes to defend other Greeks? They clearly don't. They don't care. You know, they, they, they send so few men to such a, a hopeless mission um, that there is no reason for anyone to trust that they will do what it takes to defend the rest. So this was a very, very heavy, serious blow for the alliance. And all the Athenians at this point actually say, okay, if that's how you're going to do it, we're just going to leave. Like we already evacuated our territory. We're just going to keep sailing. We have our ships. We sail to Italy. Sort it out yourselves. It's your problem now. Like we've already lost thanks to your lackluster performance at Thermopylae. 
But that is when the Spartans start spinning the story. That is when they say, actually, the reason why we sent so few men was because an oracle told us that if one of our kings died, we could save the rest of Greece. That is why our 300 stayed behind and died to a man and sacrificed themselves. When actually, there is no reason for him to do that. There was absolutely zero purpose to that final stand. It was just a hopeless act of throwing lives away. I mean, the rest of the Greek alliance had already moved away at that point. They were already in flight back to their home city. So the old argument that this is a rear guard action doesn't actually work. I mean, the other troops that were going, that were fleeing away from the pass had already escaped. So why is he staying behind? Why did Leonidas decide to die instead of surrender or simply retreat from the pass and save his own lives and life and the lives of his men? Um, and the reason for that seems to be that given that Leonidas was a very inexperienced commander, he was 60 years old at the time, but he had not, to our knowledge, ever led an army before, um, he simply didn't know what to do at that point. He thought that he should probably stay in place because he had been ordered by Sparta, by the Ephor, by the ephors and the state to go and hold that position. And he decided that the best thing he could do was to hold that position. And so he did that to the death and nobody won anything out of it. Nobody was in any way saved by that, that useless sacrifice. The Persians incurred exactly one week of delay, including three days of fighting, after which they continued their victorious march further south. And it took until the following year for the, for the Spartans to finally, finally send their entire levy north and defeat the Persians in battle. Well, thank you so much for joining us because that was just absolutely brilliant. Uh, talking to us about how much of a dick the Spartans really, truly are and dispelling a load of myths. So thank you. <laughs> it's my great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Join us tomorrow when James Scott will be back to talk all about his book, The Attack on the Liberty. Um, This was something I knew absolutely nothing about. It's Israel and America and it's 20th century, post-World War II, and it's fascinating. So don't miss out on that. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Elena and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join us on either of those platforms uh, marcus is currently working on some benefits for you so uh, there's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms we're revamping ourselves on both of them so don't forget to go in you can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up history hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year we are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>